we gather in the name of Jesus. And you know what he says about that. When you gather in my name, there I am in your midst. So we thank you, Lord Jesus, that it's the power of your Holy Spirit and your presence that is here among us. We're sensing you and we're needing you and we're wanting to honor you and uh, trust you and follow you. Open our minds that we might receive what your spirit would say to our hearts. Open our hearts that we might have understanding to know how to live with wisdom and in light and in truth. And for what you're going to do in our midst today, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, what a privilege to be with you today and to be able to open up God's word for us and what he has to say. Because we who are um, Christians following Christ are anxious to find out exactly what he would say to us today as the body of Christ gathers to worship him acceptably with reverence and with awe. The early Christian church uh, in which we were, uh, in which the... Uh, Christianity was born, the early world in which Christianity was born was not a very nice world. It was uh, full of nasty stuff, and yet these Christians were, were marked remarkably uh, amazing people. They, they stood out in their culture, in their society. They were different from those around them. They were marked in a kind of a negative sense by some of the things they refused to do. For instance, they refused to go to the circus to watch the gladiators fight because they said life is sacred and it's a special gift from God and they refused to go to watch uh, life be turned into a blood sport just to satisfy some bloodthirsty crowd. But... They also refused to get engaged in emperor worship. The, um, throughout the Roman Empire, the local authorities had the uh, power to require the people to come at a specified time and place to present uh, an offering before the reigning Caesar. And, and he would require them to come and bow before him, bring a pinch of salt, and there say, Caesar is Lord. But those early Christians refused to do that because they said, Caesar is not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And many of them paid for that stand with their lives. It was not a very nice place to live. But in the midst of that, these early Christians were a markedly joyful people in a world that didn't have much joy. Uh, uh, for instance, um, uh, they, uh, the world of the first century was not a particularly happy place to be. For instance, 50 million out of 250 million uh, of, of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. One-fifth of the entire population were slaves. And yet, these Christians were marked with joy. Then, uh, they 
they lived in a world where infanticide was a perfectly acceptable practice and understandable. Uh, in, in census data after census data, in the first three centuries, in city after city of the Roman Empire, very few families had more than one daughter in their family. Because, you see, it was one thing to have a son born, but to have a daughter was different because in those days, girls just were not economically viable. And so if they had a second daughter, they would, they would understandably say, well, we can't afford this. And so they would just cart the little baby off into the hills and abandon it and leave it to die. It was a world like that into which these Christians uh, went, and yet they were remarkably joyful. They, they had hope and, and encouragement. The, uh, they were also a remarkably hopeful people in a world in which hope was in short supply. Um, the, the old gods of Mount Olympus were no longer uh, viable or uh, optional for those uh, intelligent or thoughtful people. Then the problem was there were no new gods had been discovered yet for people to follow. And so they just wandered around in hopeless despair and had no light, no meaning, no purpose. And yet these Christians were marked with joy and they had hope and they responded to people around them with this conscious awareness of joy and hope and understanding, including their even their uh, circle of friends that were outside of their Christian believers. Well, Paul wrote to the Ephesians and he said, remember at the time, at one time you were without hope, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. And yet he wrote to the Colossians, he said, but Christ in you is the hope of glory. And it is to this hope that John writes uh, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And because this word is living and active, because it is sharper than any double-edged sword, because it will judge the thoughts and the attitudes of your heart, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's word from 1 John chapter 3, verses 1. 1 through 3. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we shall be, what we will be, has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Thank you. You may be seated. Lord, having ears to hear, may we hear what your spirit would say to us. When John deals with this passage, he begins by telling us what we are. We are the children of God. Now, dear friends, we're the children of God. We sang about that just a moment ago. But did you catch the excitement, the sheer energy and joy that John expresses in that first verse? 
when he says, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Lavished on us. Isn't that a great word? How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. He's saying, now folks, don't miss this. This is lavish love that you should be called a child of God. And that is what we are. Now, uh, some of the uh, later manuscripts and translations miss that, and we are, uh, uh, so you won't find it in the King James. But the earliest and most reliable uh, translations indicate that there, there are two Greek words, three in English, and we are. He's saying, don't be, don't be mixed up. Don't be uncertain. Don't, don't be unclear about this. You got to nail this one down. The, the love of God is so great, he has lavished you to be called a child of God. And that is what we are, a child of God. Um, Alex Deasley uh, tells of, a, um, of a, an 80-year-old lady who was actually born in the USA, but she wa he met her in a, uh, a, a church of the Nazarene in Moscow, Russia. And she, she told, she, he found out her, her story. She had been born in the USA, uh, the daughter of an American lady and a Polish immigrant who had come to the United States in the 1920s. She, uh, but her dad was just fascinated by the uh, heaven on earth that Lenin was constructing in Moscow. And, and so he was determined that he wanted to be a part of this new paradise that was being built up. And so he immigrated from the USA with his infant daughter and his wife to Moscow, Russia. Well, he was only there a couple of years before he disappeared and was never seen again. And so here's this American mother and her little girl in a land they didn't belong. They had no family, no relatives, no relationships at all, and no circle of influence. And they were growing up. But then it wasn't long before the purges began. And who would be under more suspicion than a citizen of the USA? And so the little girl's mother was arrested and sent to Siberia for 10 years. And this little girl, when her, she was in her early teens at that point, uh, was left all alone. Eventually, uh, her mother was released and they were reunited after she was released. But, but it didn't take long and, and her mother died. And once again, this young American-born lady was alone without friends or family or connection, without citizenship, without a country, in a place where she did not belong. So she went to our Nazarene missionaries there in Moscow, and she said, well, uh, should, I, uh, should I go to the embassy and apply for an immigration passport so I could return to the land of my birth? And the missionary said, well, uh, do you have any family there in the USA? No, no. Uh, not that I know of. I, I, I've never heard from them. 
Well, do you have any friends or connections at all? No. No, the only connections I have are those that I've met right here in the church in Moscow. It was a world like that into which Christianity was born. This darkened world with despair and, and uh, alienation and loneliness. And yet these Christians were filled with joy and hope. Because, and those early Christians went out and preached. Christ came to his own. And his own did not receive him, but to as many as received him, to them gave he right, he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed on his name. They went out and they preached, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. And Paul writes, you did not receive a spirit of uh, slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It is his spirit bearing witness with your spirit and my spirit that we are the children of God and all who believe on him have that privilege, that right to become the children of God. And that is what we are. I have a picture that I want to show you of the, the children of God. Nope. I need a picture. That's not the picture. <laughs> oh, here it is. Here's the, here's the picture. Oh, that's the picture. <clears throat> I think it's, uh, do you think, what kind of paint do you think that is? I'd guess it's enamel, wouldn't it? Enamel would be awful, wouldn't it? Here we are, the children of God. Man. <laughs> wow. If you were the parents, how would you discipline that? <laughs> children of God. What, what if this picture reminds you of somebody? What if it reminds you of me? Or remind you of who you are. And you got enamel paint all over your hands and all over your feet. Wherever you go, you just make a mess. And whatever you touch, it's just, it's just a mess. You know, aren't children of God like that? <laughs> kind of messy. So I have to confess, I, I'm afraid this is my picture. Maybe it's yours. But I'm a child of God, and, and yet I'm such a mess. I, I leave in my trail, in my path, uh, tracks of my humanness and how, how, what a mess I can be with relationships. And I can't remember Linda's name, and it makes me feel bad. And I'm a mess. And what if, what if the children of God make an even bigger mess, then we never admit it that we're a mess. You know, everybody else knows it, but we go around thinking we're so good and so right and so holy. And so, but wait a minute. What if we are the children of God 
that makes a mess. But then we go on to this passage, in this passage to verse 2. Verse 2 says, uh, note, 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 note that what we shall be, it moves from what we are, children of God, to what we shall be. Look at verse 2. Now, friends, we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. From what we are to what we shall be. But isn't it interesting that just about the time that, that uh, John uh, is going to tell us what we shall be, he's careful to tell us what we are not. What we will be has not yet been made known. In other words, if you want uh, somebody to describe to you uh, how, what's going to be, if you want a detailed description of what heaven is going to be like, somebody to take you by the hand and walk you down the aisles of gold and, and describe all of the glories of heaven. If, if you want somebody to do that, he says, I can't, I can't do that because I, I, it's not been revealed to me yet. And, and he says, if you want a detailed map of what the future is going to be, uh, on this earth, like uh, the stress of nations and pestilence and earthquakes and famines. You want, a, you want a detailed chronology of all those events? I don't have them. I, I can give you ballpark, but I, I, it has not been revealed to me yet. I don't know. But this I do know. When we see him, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. What if, for all the spiritually disformed and scarred people you know, people like you and me, what if the distinct possibility of someday seeing Jesus face to face is this powerful magnet that draws us to the Christian faith? We shall be like him when we see him someday. Wow. What if that's what so attracts us? You know, that's the way it was Voltaire. Voltaire was that 18th century leader of the Enlightenment. He was the uh, prophet of, of unbelief and the exponent, uh, uh, exponent of skepticism. And uh, Voltaire... Uh, was one day asked, it said, that um, somebody said, if throughout his whole career of unbelief, he had ever, ever had a moment, even a moment of considering that faith in Christ might be valid, that it might be true. Well, if you would ask me, I'd say yes, he probably did exactly when he met this Christian philosopher whose mind was as alert and, and, and sharp and agile and uh, fulfilled as, as his. And, and this Christian philosopher, 
in the midst of the cut and the thrust of debate had, had Voltaire pinned against the wall with the sheer power of logic of truth. And Voltaire had to admit that, yes, faith in Christ is real and right. But that's not the way it was at all. It's said that when Voltaire was asked the question, he became quite subdued and his eyes were downcast and he said, once I met a man named Jesus Christ. What he said was, once I met a man who reminded me of Jesus Christ. Once I met Jean de Fletcher. John Fletcher of Maley, the Swiss naturalized Englishman who John Wesley de decreed should be his successor, except that he died seven years before Wesley died. But Voltaire said, once I met a man who reminded me of Jesus. What if that's God's plan for you? And me. Is it possible that you could remind others of Jesus? Have you ever noticed that um, in certain families there are just strong family resemblances? You know, you could tell uh, they were brothers from a mile away. They were just, they just looked like each other, like they were from the same family. Uh, Mike McCauley's family, he has five siblings, and man, there's a strong family resemblance if you've ever met the McCauleys. But do you think that there ought to be a family resemblance among the children of God? Should we not uh, reflect the image of our Father? What if God has a plan for you to be reflecting who he is in you. Did you know that the longer and more faithfully you follow Jesus, that the more and more you become like him? The, we, we, we sing about it in a song. Change from glory unto glory, till then have we take our place Till we cast our crowns before the lost in wonder, love, and praise. And Paul writes about it in uh, 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 2 Corinthians when he says, Seeing the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, we are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Hmm. Day by day, step by step, we literally, who are following Jesus, become more and more like him. Well, how does he do that? How can that be possible? Have you, have you read Hebrews chapter 12 lately? Let me, let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, just a few verses. But this is what the writer to the Hebrews says. This is how God is treating you as his child. And you have forgotten, and have you forgotten, the encouraging words, encouraging words, God spoke to you as his children? He said, my child, 
Don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Who ever heard of a child who is never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his children at all. Since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, shouldn't we submit even more to the discipline of the father, of our father, of our spirits, and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always for our good so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterwards, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained by it. Wow. Sounds like getting a whipping. You ever had a whipping? A whooping. You ever be disciplined and you got a whooping? Man, I don't know. I've I've had who's never had who's never had a whooping? Oh, a few. You're you're lucky. You get, well, when you get a whooping, man, you remember it. But what about a whooping from the Lord? God disciplines those he treats as a son. No discipline is pleasant at the time. It's painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are being trained by it. Endure hardship as discipline. Oh, so that's what you're going through. That hardship, that's a discipline. Endure it as discipline from this heavenly father. And every child of God undergoes discipline. And if you don't, you're an illegitimate child. So, thank God when he disciplines you. It's an encouraging word. It's a sign that God's at work in you. <laughs> it could be worse. God's at work and he's teaching you and training you and molding you so that you can become more and more like him. But then notice that this passage moves from what we are, what we shall be, to verse 3, what we must be. Verse 3, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Does a hope of seeing Jesus someday and becoming like him generate any obligation for how we should live here and now? Do you want to go to heaven someday? Well, does that create any obligation for how we live here and now? Does um. A hope of becoming perfectly like Christ require anything? If you want to go to heaven someday, do you have to have holiness today? Now notice in this passage 
that there is a clear distinction between the perfect likeness of Christ when we shall see him and the perfect purity of Christ even as he is pure in his children today. Perfect likeness is something we can know when we see him face to face. It's, Jesus is perfect in his knowledge and in his understanding and therefore he has perfect performance. But the perfect and but only perfect understanding is capable of perfect performance. But perfect peace, perfect purity of Christ is something that lies within our grasp. And there's a huge difference between purity and maturity. Not every Christian is mature, but every Christian must be pure. And everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have the hope of, hope of heaven someday, holiness must be taken seriously today. Hope and holiness, they go together. I want, oh, I have obligation now. You can't separate your hope of heaven and how you live today. Well, whoever has this hope purifies themselves. How does that happen? Did you know that this entire passage of Scripture in 1 John is all about how we as the children of God are to live our lives, to live pure lives? Chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever says, I abide in him, ought to walk just as he walked. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. Love, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because in this world we are like him. In this world, we are like him. How can that possibly be? Can it be any plainer? How can you and I live purified in this ungodly world, uncaring world, hard, cold, dark, and careless? How can I be pure? My performance, it's obviously not flawless. But my heart could be pure in its motives. And how does that happen? John knew we'd ask that question. And so he says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, purifies us from all sin. Whoa. You want to go to heaven someday? Then you need purity today, holiness today. But how does that happen? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, he, he, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Well, 
How do, how do I make that real for me? How, 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 do I, how do I come to the place where I can be pure like Jesus, pure, pure motives, my performance not, but my motive right? And, and John knew he, we'd ask that question, and he says to us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to, for, and, and to purify us from all unrighteousness. All those early Christians were men and women of hope and joy and love and purity because they were men and women of holiness and purity.